have read or heard or watched any news in the past couple of weeks, you've probably seen pictures of this. That was an underwater submersible called the Titan um, that had been designed to bring tourists down to sea with their own eyes the wreckage of the Titanic. Sadly, a couple of Sundays ago, on one of those tourist missions down with five people on board, the Titan suffered some kind of catastrophic implosion. And tragically, all five people on board lost their lives. Really, the only silver lining or glimmer of light that I found in the, the whole sad story uh, was how quickly this would have happened for those people. That when you're two plus miles down below the surface of the sea, an implosion like that and everything that comes with it happens as quickly as you might flip on a light switch, giving the brain no time really even to register and react to what's going on or to feel any pain at all. But today I kind of want to use that image, that, that idea of intense pressure bearing down on something as a picture in our message today. Because the reality is that there are a lot of intense pressures that are also seeking to destroy the gospel ministry. The gospel ministry as it has worked in your own heart personally, as well as the gospel ministry that we share and that we undergo as a church here at Bethany. In our reading then from 2 Timothy 4 today, we are going to see two of these external forces that are at work against us, but we are also going to see how Jesus has overcome those oppositions on our behalf so that we can continue our gospel ministry despite whatever pressures we might face. Now, just to give you a little bit of context before we dive in, um, Paul, who wrote many letters of the New Testament, well, he's writing here his last one, at least the last one that we are aware of. He was writing these words to a young pastor who had spent a good amount of time working firsthand with Paul, named Timothy. And in this letter, Paul gives Timothy a lot of warnings and encouragements for his ministry. And here in these eight verses of chapter four, we see a few of those warnings and encouragements. As we read, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now I mentioned a minute ago that this was Paul's last letter. I didn't tell you why, though. The reason why this was his last letter is because Paul was about to be executed at the hands of an anti-Christian government. The Roman Emperor Nero had uh, 
begun undertaking a rash of bloody persecutions against Christians, and Paul's name, unfortunately, wound up on that list. In this letter, if you would read the rest of it, you can hear the urgency in Paul's tone as he implores Timothy to come visit him quickly because Paul knows that his days are running short on this earth. That's really what brings us to our first key point and the first of these pressures that we face. Opposition to gospel ministry comes from the world. Now, you and I have been blessed today to live in a country where we have freedom of expression and freedom of religion. We don't have to worry that the police or that, that soldiers are going to come in here and round us, uh, round us up and drag us off into prison for gathering around God's word, right? And yet that doesn't mean that opposition doesn't still come from the world in its own ways. Sometimes that opposition comes on a, an individual sort of level. People who will insult you simply because you believe in Jesus as your Savior or because you uphold the words of Scripture as authoritative in every area of your life. Sometimes it's at a corporate level or these various media groups who in their messaging will seek to make you feel like an outsider for upholding every single page of the Bible as truth. There are plenty of special interest and advocacy groups who are working tirelessly day and night in order to paint churches just like this one and people just like you and me as bigoted, outdated, even as hateful of their fellow human beings who don't believe the same things. Opposition comes from the world. And just because we live in a country where we are blessed with freedom of religion doesn't mean the day couldn't come when even our own government might decide to abuse its authority by abusing Christians like us. Why? Because the message of Jesus might be seen as a threat to their own continued grasp on power and control. Opposition comes from the world, and this is exactly, in fact, what Jesus told his disciples to expect from the world, right? That they shouldn't be surprised when it happens. In fact, in our gospel lesson today from Matthew 10, Jesus said, Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Even those most natural and strongest bonds that come with family, Jesus says, will find themselves under duress and even severed at times. Why? Because of faith in him. Sometimes even resulting in violence and persecution. And so we feel that pressure bearing down on us from the world, right? And yet, it's exactly what we've been told to expect. There is, however, another source of opposition that we find in these verses. One that maybe comes from a source that is not quite so expected. It's the one that we find in verse 3. And I'm going to read those words again for you now. Paul says, The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And as we see those words like doctrine and teachers, um, Paul is actually referencing an earlier part of this letter in which he was warning Timothy against false teachers, opposition that would arise 
from within the church. And that's really our, our second key point today, that opposition to gospel ministry also comes from the visible church. And now we need to make an important distinction here between visible and invisible church. Right? Visible church is exactly what you would expect it to be. Churches like this, or like the one we have over at the Parkway campus, filled with people who proclaim the name of Jesus, people who label themselves as Christians, right? The invisible church then is a group that really only God knows because only God can see those hearts which truly have faith in them. So what Paul is saying here is that in that visible Christian church, the church that we can see with our own eyes, opposition to God's teaching will arise. Those who label themselves as Christians will sometimes abandon true doctrine and teaching in order to surround themselves with all kinds of unhealthy and unspiritual teaching. We see it among those who perhaps insist that good works are necessary in the salvation equation, that it can't simply be by God's grace alone. We find it among those who praise certain things that God calls sin and that he wants us to stay far, far away from. We find it among churches in which uh, the people let their uh, church authorities, cardinals and popes and church presidents, determine their teachings that they believe rather than simply letting the Bible itself do that. We find it among those who maybe commingle the teachings of the Christian faith with other faiths, and all in the false name of unity. Now the pressure, the pressure that we feel happens when, like Paul told Timothy, happens when these people will simply not put up with sound doctrine, will not endure it around them anymore. It's a pressure that we face when these people maybe try to convince you that, that the sin your flesh loves so much is actually okay and is maybe even good and, and beautiful in God's eyes. It's a pressure that comes when they try to convince you to join them and join the world in, in all of the name-calling against those who uphold the Bible as authoritative for faith and life. And if that doesn't work, well, there are plenty of leaders among these visible churches that are on Capitol Hill that are, in fact, working, lobbying in order to pass legislation so that churches like this one are forced to espouse unbiblical, unscriptural teachings and policies or face punishment or fines or whatever if they don't. God has told us to expect not only opposition from the world, but opposition even from within the visible church. And so we have another layer of pressure then building on top of us in addition to that opposition of the world, pressure that continues to mount and mount and mount. And what's it trying to do? It's trying to break you. It's trying to break me so that we conform, so that we admit wrongdoing perhaps and, and, and join them going with their flow rather than with Christ. Pressure that is ultimately trying to destroy that gospel ministry both the ministry that has worked on our hearts as well as the ministry that we proclaim with our life and with our lips. 
My question then for you today is this. How well do you hold up under the pressure? How well do you hold up when your company is telling you and all the other employees there that you need to engage in some business practices that you know are dishonest? Do you respectfully tell them that you can't be party to that, or do you find ways to justify it, or at least maybe implement some of the ones that seem a little less harmful to people? How do you stand up when your work friends invite you on a Friday to take an Uber with them out to the bar because everybody's going to go get drunk, celebrate the weekend? You join in with them because you don't want to be seen as an outsider or as a weirdo? Or do you lovingly explain to them that drunkenness simply does not honor God? How do you hold up when maybe you're trying to do gospel ministry and evangelize one of your neighbors, but, but they're having really difficult times swallowing some of the teachings of Bethany and of the Bible? Do you apologize for what God has written in his word? Sorry, but that's just the way it is. Or do you use that as an opportunity to explain to them how even the things that we find most difficult in Scripture are still beacons of God's light and love for us? How do you stand up when respected university professors and public figures go on the record bashing Christianity and making fun of some of those stories that they find so ridiculous in the Bible? Do you maybe find your heart wanting to agree with some of their points? Or do you use that as an opportunity to remind yourself and maybe even to tell other people around you that your God is far wiser? than any human being ever could be. How do you think you would hold up if you faced what Paul did and what so many Christians throughout the centuries have had to face? How do you think you would hold up if the government were telling you at gunpoint that you had to either choose between faith or your life? If you've ever found yourself like me, fudging your morals a little bit, if you've ever found yourself like me, keeping the truth hidden and buried deep down inside because you were afraid that the audience of people around you would receive it with hostility, if you've ever, like me, found yourself apologizing for certain teachings of the Bible that, that, that our culture finds offensive, that, that are unpopular, well, it's because there's actually another opposition that is working against you, not an external one but an internal one. You see, right with you and me, every moment of every day, there is a saboteur who is at work trying to bring us down from within. And that's what brings us to our our next key point, which is that opposition to the gospel ministry also comes from within our own hearts, right? Because of our love for certain sins or for certain people, because of our love for personal comfort or to feel respected and admired, or maybe it's fear. Maybe it's because of your fear of feeling rejected or like an outsider, your fear of financial loss or loss of friends. The pressure mounts and mounts and mounts, and the reality is that so often we simply are not strong enough and we collapse beneath the pressure. Now, when a sub loses its integrity two miles below the surface of the sea, well, it's game over 
pretty much as fast as you can snap your fingers. And yet, in our case, in our situation, even though it might seem totally backward at first glance, it's right there in the crushing darkness of our failures where gospel ministry shines the brightest. Even when the the forces of opposition press us into cowering and, and backing down, gospel ministry still prevails. And that's because gospel ministry is not really about how well you and I stand up beneath all of these pressures around us. Rather, gospel ministry is about the one who did withstand every force of opposition that stood against him. Jesus stood up against those religious rulers of his day, those leaders of his visible church, people who did call him names, people who tried to discredit his ministry at every opportunity, people who tried to force their own rules upon him and his disciples, people who would not put up with his ministry and his work among them and so schemed to have him put to death. Jesus stood up to that opposition of the visible church. And then he also stood up against the opposition that came from the world. He stood up in the face of a corrupt Roman governor who condemned him to die simply to clear him out of the way of his own pursuit of power. He stood up to those Roman soldiers, their hands and their whips, as they mocked his claims to kingship. In fact, every moment of every day for the 33 years of his life on this earth, Jesus stood up without buckling, without breaking beneath every opposition of of this world or the visible leaders, the, the, the visible church or hell or whatever it was that attacked him. He stood up beneath it all. Only at the end to willingly let himself be crushed anyway. Not beneath the weight of his own sin or failures, not beneath the hell that was his own well-deserved punishment. Now Jesus allowed himself to be crushed for our iniquities. All that pressure of all those sins and all the punishment for all people of all time, Jesus took that weight off of you. He took that weight off me. Do you know what that means for you and me today? The fact that Jesus did this, the fact that he took this, that he, that he became crushed on our behalf, do you know what it means for you? It means that you and I truly have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear from those external forces, from the world, from, from those of the visible church who have maybe taken on the true teaching of the Bible and of Christ. We have nothing to fear from the internal forces either, from sin, from our failures. We have nothing to fear even from death and hell itself. None of it. And why? It's because Jesus suffered every opposition 
in order to ensure for you and for me a secure position. And it's that secure position that the Apostle Paul knew he had in his life. That's why he was willing to endure violence both from Jews and from pseudo-Christians, why he stood up to attacks from Greeks and governments, why he even stood up to a Roman governor. Because he knew what Jesus was holding in his hands. He knew what was waiting for him at the end of his race. Now there is in store for me, he said, the crown of righteousness. And that is a crown that no force, either on this earth or even hell itself, can ever wrestle away from you and me. That's something that even our own sins, our own struggles, our own failures in gospel ministry can't disqualify us from receiving. And why? Because Jesus was already crushed for you. Jesus already took that away from you so that you would have the reward at the end. That's the gospel ministry. A savior who dies for your sin and who was raised to life in victory. That's the gospel ministry that has rescued all of us. That's the gospel ministry that has transformed every person in this room. And so that is the gospel ministry that is going to continue here at Bethany as we continue to do those exact same things that Paul told Timothy to do in his last letter. That's the gospel ministry that will continue as we preach the word, not our cultures, not a pope's, not even our own hearts, but the word that we find in God's true scriptures. That's the gospel ministry that will continue as we rebuke one another, as we call sin what it is and call one another to the carpet when we are falling in love with sin. That's the gospel ministry that will continue as we encourage the fearful, the sad, the lonely, and the sick. That's the gospel ministry that will continue as we instruct minds, both young and old, along those paths of God. That's the gospel ministry that will continue even as we endure many oppositions from many different sources, that's the gospel ministry that will continue as we point people to Jesus, their righteous judge and their victorious savior, so that they, along with you and me, will continue to lovingly long for his appearing and for that crown of righteousness that he has in store for each and every one of us. Amen.